This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So the topic for the, for the evening is how to waste time well, which you're already doing just by being here, I guess. So congratulations. Um, the, the Thomists of the strict observance may think that it's not especially Thomistic, but I would, I would suggest that it's Thomistic in its essence, even if it's not scholastic in its form. I don't know whether that will satisfy you or not. Uh, perhaps in my defense, I'll say it's Thomistic-ish at the end. A few years ago, in a widely noted essay, William Dershowitz warned that the nation's top colleges were turning kids into zombies. His words, not mine. While Dershowitz noted that many of his students at Yale were bright, thoughtful, creative kids, most of them seemed content to color within the lines. This is all just him. I won't tell you what I'm quoting. Very few were passionate about ideas, he said. Very few saw college as part of an intellectual discovery. In fact, he said everyone dressed as if they were ready to be interviewed at a moment's notice. Now, I know students at Yale aren't NYU students, and that's probably why they feel so sad about themselves and their studies. And throwing shade at any Columbia students here for not having invited me to the Columbia chapter, obviously anyone who's not at NYU would be upset about their colleges college experience. But I wonder if you might recognize something in Dershowitz's description of students who are driven, accomplished, accomplished, talented, successful, capable, and yet, as he goes on to describe, if you look beneath the facade of seamless well-adjustment, what you often find are toxic levels of fear, anxiety, emptiness, aimlessness, and isolation. The prospect of not being successful is their greatest terror, he says. Or as Mark Schiffman, chair of humanities at Villanova once termed it, contemporary students are not majoring in physics or in mathematics or classics. They're majoring, he says, in fear. Schiffman says that Hunger Games is the novel which best describes the contemporary college experience. Here's how he puts it. The trilogy, Hunger Games, just depicts adolescents rigorously trained by adults in desperate but meaningless life or death competitions. Its dark emptiness resonates with students' unease and dissatisfaction with their educational regimen, as well as with their worry that they're all honed up with no place to go. This is still Schiffman. Afflicted with a desperate compulsion for competitive advantage, they rack up majors, minors, certificates, credentials, internships to keep them in the running for what they feel to be an ever more elusive success. They're driven, he says, by fear. Now, I hate to say it, but if any of that's true, perhaps something is missing. Perhaps that doesn't describe a life lived especially well. And note, it seems to me that what Dershowitz and Schiffman are describing are not simply the lives of college students, but really the lives of many Americans. Hurried, hasty, anxious, uncertain of purpose, but sort of Olympian lives, stronger, faster, higher, more. Unsure why, except that's what you're to do. Students, in that case, are mirroring their parents, their teachers, their mentors, for many of us are like this now. We're not entirely sure what we're for. And since we're not really sure what the purpose of life is about, what would make a life really well lived, we opt instead for accomplishments, for success, for racking up awards. Visible marks that we are doing well, even if we're not sure that we are well. Any of this sound familiar? Am I just making this up? Old, old men and their theories? Now, one reason for this, certainly not the only reason, is that we live in a disenchanted world. For us moderns, the cosmos is no longer full of spirits and gods, fairies, and forms, but there's only causal forces which we harness for our needs. 
Now, while that allows for unprecedented technical and economic progress, it can also lead, in the words of Charles Taylor, to a wide sense of malaise at the disenchanted world, a sense that the universe is just kind of flat and empty, without density or a feeling of magic to it. Taylor says this entails a vision of life which accepts that there is no final goods beyond human satisfaction, nor any allegiances to anything besides that satisfaction, but human satisfaction, he says, is increasingly defined by us in pragmatic, reductive, and utilitarian ways. There really is, in life, nothing more to discover and find than the next iPhone, or the returns promised by the stock market, or for the health promised by medicine, or health, or social well-being. The range of our competence, he says, has shrunken to the technical, even while our very natural human concerns for meaning and purpose continue entirely unabated, but we don't feel especially competent to deal with them because it's outside of the realm of what we're trained and educated to do. But because we're not sure that there is anything to be known or accomplished beyond the technical, we just turn to the next iPhone, rising GDP, and a corner office. And those things are good, but they're just not up to the task of satisfying the human being or providing ultimate meaning. And so we're jittery and consumed with the diminishing returns while still frantically attempting to make the next iPhone and get a bigger corner office. Repeat endlessly and tirelessly forever until you die. Now, the governing questions for us are not as they were for the ancients. What is this being for? But rather, how does this being work? If we understand how this being works, we can control the causal forces of that being and harness it to our particular needs. But if we don't ask what things are for, in Aristotelian language, the final cause, the questions of the human questions are fundamentally altered. The drama of forming one's own character with the risk and possibility involved in that, the wonder, all the transformation, what it means to be young and to grow in wisdom, all of that turns for us into a manual of maintenance, schedules, and self-improvement. Even death, as Yuval Harari has recently argued, has lost any religious or metaphysical meaning. It's just a hardware glitch. It's just a problem to be solved. Or as he put it in an interview with Daniel Kahneman, death is now optional. There's no reason why we should consider it to be a poetical problem or a mystery of evil. It's just a glitch to solve if we figure out how. It is also, I suggest, why there's so much anxiety about it all. Believing neither in creation or providence, the world for moderns is one of stark and empty power. And while its powers and causes can be harnessed and used to our advantages, those powers are not directed toward anything in and of themselves. They can be recalcitrant, to our desires, they can be beneficial to our desires, but they're limited by nothing other than our own imaginations. Consequently, and I find this to be somewhat odd, we experience modern freedom as both wildly empowering, a kind of emancipation from the forces of the universe, and also as a source of utter anxiety, because now everything is up to us. If you ever buy an insurance premium, it will have an opt-out clause for the insurance company, act of God, there are no more acts of God for the modern world. And so when there's a plague or a pandemic or an economic crash, there is no one to blame it on except us. Somebody should have done better. Someone should have prevented this. And so we are both emancipated from the forces of fate and providence, but we are also emancipated into utter responsibility for everything.
And the only thing that we can really control in the end, or at least the only thing I can control in the end, is racking up more and more accomplishments, which becomes then something of my emancipation. I'm responsible for everything, but for what? I don't quite know. I don't quite know, but I know I'm super responsible for it. Any of that sound like your senior year of high school? Can I tell you a different story? One that I think is a better one. You can take this as revelation if you'd like. You can take this as philosophy if you'd like. You can take this just as literature if you like. That's up to you. You have to interpret how you want to read this. But the story begins with, in the beginning. Think about Genesis 1. Genesis 1 goes out of its way to repeat the phrase that all is well, all is good. God creates, it is good. God creates, it is good. God sees, and in fact, he takes great delight in things. I love this little cliche from Chesterton. Chesterton is vague at times, but hilarious. Chesterton asks the question, why does the sun rise every day for every day, for every day, for millions and perhaps billions of years? Well, have you ever thrown a child up in the air? Or with my own youngest child, I love to put her on top of the fridge and then walk away as if I'm not going to come back. (laughs) What does she immediately do as I walk away? She shrieks in terror, daddy, daddy. I pull her down and what does she immediately say? Again. Yeah, she says, I want it back up or again. In Chesterton's rather sort of pithy way of putting it, the sun rises every day for billions of years because God's like, again, because he takes delight in it. He sees it and says that it is good. Now, remember, that all makes good sense metaphysically. For since God is his own existence, nothing other than God can be without utter dependence upon God. Because everything else which exists has existence, but is not its own existence. So we can't think of God's causal and creative powers the way the deists think of it. It's not as if God could have wound up the universe at the beginning and then let it go. Because in order for something to be, God has to add, from our perspective, every moment say, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. And if God is saying at every moment, if he's preserving our existence and the existence of all that is, to say let it be is also to say it is good that it is. That's the pattern of Genesis 1, is it not? The world is utterly contingent. It has no external necessity. God is under no internal compulsion to create. He gains nothing from creating. He loses nothing but by not creating. He creates in order to bestow existence and in the end grant his goodness to all things. It's fundamentally an act of generosity. What he's giving is a participation in some way of his image or likeness and particularly that likeness which is his existence. Why? Because it is good to do so. That's a story of goodness and a story of generosity. Now, Genesis 1, of course, is entirely from the cosmological point of view. There's no people really in Genesis 1. There's male and female, but they're unnamed. They're not agents. They're not dramatic actors. In Genesis 2, as you know, we get dramatic actors, yes? We get Adam, eventually we get Eve. But the moment that the people are involved, real persons, ones who can name and speak and choose, what does God almost immediately and somewhat shockingly say in Genesis 2? Does he say it's very good? No, that's in Genesis 1. What does he say in Genesis 2? It's not good. All the Catholics in the room are like, wait a second, where's that? What Bible is that? Genesis 1 ends with it's very good. Genesis 2, 
it is not good that men should be alone. But notice, there's something startling to that. Uh, Now, this is poetical, but I like to imagine it this way. So here you have Adam, who's created in the image of God. Of all creation, he is created for his own sake, because he's a person, yes? God is there. There is no original sin. The garden is perfect. There's fruits and vegetables. There's gold and topaz, everything that's listed there. It seems pretty great, right? Except it is not good for Adam to be alone. Now, think of the story. What does God do? He parades the animals by. Now, I love to sort of imagine what this is like. I imagine this is sort of like being 20 years old and looking for romance or a partner or a spouse in life. So here you are. You're sort of in your chair watching, and God is going to parade possibilities by. Here comes the first one. You're like, no thanks. Here comes the second one. You're like, eh, not for me. Here's the third one, not for me. The fourth one, that's a platypus, not interested. Here's the fifth one, giraffe, nice neck, too tall. Over and over and over again, the animals parade by, and Adam says, not for me, not for me. Now, as I read the story, which is just John Paul II's reading of the story, but I'm telling it more uh, whimsically, perhaps, what God is teaching Adam is that Adam is alone, and there is none other like him in the created order. But go back to being 20 and having failed dates. You begin to think, there's no one at NYU who is right for me. Then you make a rather grandiose claim. There's no one in the entire city who is right for me. There's no one on the East Coast which is right for me. And then you eventually, is any of this sounding familiar? I hope not. And then you eventually conclude something worse, which is not that no one is right for me, but I am not right for anyone. And suddenly Adam is brought into an awareness of himself as a person, as an agent and as an actor, who is unlike everything in creation because he is a person. What can he do about it? Nothing. God casts him into a deep sleep. He awakens and there's Eve. And he says, at least in some of the translations, at last. I tell my own daughters all the time, creation is not completed until Eve is there. And creation is really not completed until she speaks back in the second Eve, because Eve doesn't speak in Genesis 2, only Adam speaks. We have to wait several books for the second Eve to speak. She says, yes. Adam says, at last. At last. Now, here's the question. Could Adam have said no? Could he have looked at Eve and his response to Eve have been like his response to the giraffe and the platypus? Not for me. Of course. He's entirely free to reject Eve. Now, if he had rejected Eve, what would he have been rejecting? Well, her, obviously. What else? Real question. Meaning you can, I want your answers. God. God. Say more. Say more? I know know God is always the answer, but there's still an explanation after that. Faith seeks understanding. How is it that he's rejecting God? Like, as in God gives him his gifts, this gift that he wants. Okay. So we we could think of it as God sort of offered a gift, like, here's a thing. And Adam's like, no, thanks. But that wouldn't be the fullness of the story. Because God is not just offering Adam a, a, a thing. He's offering Adam the possibility of communion. And to be in communion is to be 
like God, who is communion, God being three in one, consubstantial in nature, but different in role, and different in, in, in relation to each other. Adam can't really be an, in the full image of God until he has the capacity and realization of communion. So if he says no to Eve, he's saying no to Eve, he's saying no to God, and to whom else is he saying no? Himself. To himself. He'd be saying no to himself as well. But what is his response to Eve? Well, it's very much like Chesterton's account of God's relationship to the Son. At last, this is great, again. Or delight. We are made for communion and we're made for delight. We are not made for busyness and accomplishment alone. We are made for communion and we're made for delight. Now, as I understand the way we are, our anthropology, I suspect we struggle to believe that the purpose of life is communion and self-donation and gift and generosity. I suspect, in fact, that we've been trained from our various early age to not think of the purpose of life as communion and self-donation and gift and generosity, but that we've been praised, and you ended up at a place like NYU because you were really good at succeeding and accomplishments and winning, yeah? Maybe you're also trained in generosity. I suspect we find it difficult, often, I know I do, to look at ourselves, to look at the world, to look at others and joyfully say, at last, it's so good you're here. Nor do we find, I suspect, our work an opportunity to offer the gift of ourselves. When you sit down to the laboratory or the equation or the proof or the text, how often do you feel it as a burden to overcome and how often do you feel it as a chance to offer yourself in some way? Those are not the same experience, are they? Not remotely the same experience. Now, according to Joseph Pieper, he says, we've been trained to struggle to see reality as good, to see reality as wondrous and joyous. Not that he says that our physiological sense of sight is impaired, although he does suspect that we are perhaps overwhelmed by the sheer volume of how many things we can see all day, every day. He says, rather, that the very integrity of human existence is threatened by what he calls existential poverty. Existential poverty. That's what I meant earlier when I said we've become overwhelmed with questions of having and doing as opposed to questions of being. We're, satis we're, we're satisfied to do well, and we're not so sure that we are well. Now, it's not only that we refuse to look at things, Pieper says, even if we decided to look, he says, we wouldn't see what's there because our power to see the goodness of things is somewhat impaired and it will remain so, he suggests, until our sight is restored. We have to learn to see the way that God sees the sun in Chesterton's maxim or the way that Adam saw Eve. At last, this is good. I would like to be in communion with this. That, Peter says, requires a basic attunement with the world. I love that idea, right? To be in tune, to be in harmony with the world. And unless we're in a tune with the world and in tune with ourselves, we won't see how good and true and beautiful the world is. We might be attentive to some aspects of the world, but we've been trained, he says, to not be attentive to the sheer, utter, delightful goodness of things. Think of how many times you sit down to a lecture, not this one, I mean your classes, and what comes across first is duty, obligation, burden, work, toil, task, as opposed to occasions for my subjectivity to be in communion with the good. 
Think about what it's like to sit down to a paper because it's due. And what it's like to sit down to a paper because you are motivated for love of knowledge of the thing you wish to understand. These are fundamentally different experiences, are they not? In the one, your very personhood is engaged at the most minimal level. Brain power is engaged, yes? Then you hit spell check and turn it in. In the other, you are engaged. And metaphorically, when you are engaged in the work, what are you turning in? Something like yourself. Effects resemble their causes. Impersonal work has an impersonal effect. Personal work, it feels like you that's being turned in, does it not? You feel like you're offering something of yourself? So, if Pieper's right, what to do? How to overcome existential poverty? (coughs) For this, I think, we require a change of viewpoint. A change from the frantic desire to do and to have to rack up accomplishments. Now, traditionally, as you well know, pride of place has not been given to work, but to leisure. You'll recall that the word school itself just means, everyone knows this, leisure. Your main task while at university is leisure. Now, that's not to be confused with simple downtime or entertainment or rest. Genuine leisure is not non-activity. Genuine leisure is a mental and spiritual attitude, Pieper says. In fact, it's an attunement to the goodness of the real. It's a condition of the soul. It's not merely the external condition of having nothing to do just now, of having time. Leisure is an internal condition. It's an aptitude or a disposition of the person. When we, in Pieper's phrase, acquiesce to the real and confidently approve of the integrity and goodness of the world and the direction of created things. Leisure, he suggests, stands in a kind of radical openness to the real with a kind of deep amazement and approval. Approval, probus, it is good. I approve. What does one approve? It's good, just as God does in Genesis 1 and Adam in Genesis 2. At the root of leisure, Pieper says, is contemplation which he calls an attitude of celebration. Now, too often, contemplation is presented as a kind of withdrawal from the world into the enclosing reserve of one's own self, especially one's own mind, generally in a kind of stultifying silence. I have five noisy, loud children at home. My house vibrates with noise from beginning to end. Occasionally, Amy, that's my wife, will say, you said you wanted a noisy house, and I say, and I will respond, I didn't know it would be like this. I would love to go into this inner silence of my own contemplation sometimes, to just be alone with thought. But Pieper suggests that's not the full range of contemplation. It's true, he says, that contemplation requires attentiveness, but contemplation steps away from the hustle and bustle of busyness, not in withdrawal, in a kind of passivity, but instead with an active receptivity. Leisure is a kind of activity. It's a form of doing things. It's an affectionate affirmation of things. It's a reaching out for things. It's not a shrinking back or pushing away, but more like an embrace and at last. Leisure and the contemplation required for it thus requires a kind of recalibration of how we approach the world. It's a making visible of what we don't normally recognize, what we normally overlook because we're using things and doing things and having things, but not being with things. In fact, contemplation, Fever says, requires the recognition made possible only by love. You've had this experience? Do you have a friend 
a sibling, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, who others don't understand why you find them so lovely, and yet you find them utterly lovely, and you see more in them than your friends do. Where the eyes of love is, the eyes see. Contemplation isn't indifference. It's not a stilling or a cessation of activity. It's in fact an activity of a particular intensity and a particular kind, a determined reaching out to the world in expectant alertness. It's a celebration which derives vitality from affirmation. Just as God ends Genesis 1 by affirming the goodness of his work, so contemplation actively celebrates the same goodness of the same work that God has created. Have you ever been bored? How dare your judgment of the world be different than that of God's judgment? God thought it was good. God thought it was delightful. You're bored with it? You get to countermand God's judgment of the goodness and delightfulness of the world? Who do you think you are? Now, nor should we think of this attitude of celebration and contemplation just as a kind of recondite accomplishment of the few mystics. Not at all. Pieper says the highest form of affirmation is the festival. I love this idea. It's from his little book, In Tune with the World, A Theory of Festivity, which I highly recommend. I happen to think it's better than his more famous Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Pieper says that in festivity, the true contemplative looks for the festive aspects of the world. But here's the unhappy question that Pieper asks, and I'll ask you. When's the last time that you had a real festival? A real feast day? Has it been a while? For how many of you has it been a while since you've had a real festival? Not a party, not an activity, not a leisure event. A real festival in which your basic comportment to the world was celebration and this is good. And you did it for no other reason than it was good to do. More than a day? More than a week? Well, if you went to mass today, your answer should be no. But more than a week? <laughs> you should know this. More than a week? More than a month? More than a quarter? Three months? More than a year? Ever? Now, in ordinary labor, we are concerned that our effort accomplishes its purpose. It'd be pointless to do ordinary work and it not result in anything, right? It would be inefficient and somewhat ridiculous. Toiling away at some task without accomplishment would be failure. But in a festivity, the whole notion of success or failure is irrelevant. You've had these experiences where you're meeting someone new and you think, I hope this goes well and they become my friend. They're not really your friend then if you think that way, yes? With your genuine friends, you don't think, I wonder if I'm succeeding just now. Have I impressed them? Do they like my shirt? One doesn't do that with real friends. With real friends, you are not attempting to accomplish anything other than friendship. You're doing the activity for its own sake. One does not fail at feasting except to feast for some other reason than feasting. Because it's an activity done for its own sake. And if you attempt to feast in order to bring something about or accomplish some purpose or win new friends or impress your neighbors or make your ex jealous, you're not feasting. Festivity gives up the usual expectation of reward or yield or profit. 
It makes an offering of its labor. It sacrifices without any hope of return on the sacrifice. Now that's possible only from the disposition of abundance or of wealth. Not to be sure the wealth of money, but what Pieper calls the wealth of existential richness. Having a self which is so disposed to the goodness of the world that it seeks the goodness of the world for no other reason than it is good. That's a festival. Now, only the lover can do that. Only the one who really and genuinely loves can will or love or approve the goodness of the world in a deep affirmation which expects nothing in return but celebrates only the goodness of this thing. At last, it is good that you are here. And let's admit, we probably want nothing more in life. I suspect this is true. That you and I and everyone wants nothing more in life than to be seen and the other to say, it is good that you are here. Nothing is worse than the other to see us and to say, it is not good that you are here. Or to wish to use us or instrumentalize us in some way. We instead wish to be recognized and welcomed. That's what we hope. Celebration can't occur without willing the world as God sees the world. Without loving the goodness of the world. In fact, God's very nature is celebratory. One might think of the inner life of God as something like the endless dance of joy. The Father pours out the entirety of being to the Son who is begotten. The Son is begotten of eternity, not created, and responds back to the Father with joy and love. St. Bernard says that the pouring out of the Father and the reception of the Son and the giving of love of the Son back to the Father is the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says, the Father is the one who kisses, the Son is the one who is kissed, and the Holy Spirit is, is itself the kiss. That's a recognition that the inner life of God is one of sheer, endless, generous, ecstatic joy. Or at least something analogous to that. The beating heart of the universe, the basic principle of all things, is joy and generosity. So how do we become existentially rich? If, any, if you like any of that vision, you think, yeah, I would like to be that way. How do we do that? How do we become lovers who see what is good and delight in it, and who even do our work that way, who sit down to the laboratory or the microscope or the proof or the text thinking, another chance to approve, another chance to give? How do we become contemplatives when there's just so much to do, when we're so busy, and when, if this is the case, we're so existentially poor? Here's a harder question as an aside. Is your education making you existentially rich or is it making you existentially poor? Are you majoring in love or are you majoring in fear? So how to become rich? By which I mean existentially rich. It's easy to become rich. You just don't study classics. <laughs> First, books. Books, your students after all. My own teaching uh, for most of my academic career has been in great books programs, which have been committed to helping students learn to pull up a chair with the greatest minds. But it seems to me more and more obvious that in moments of cultural confusion and ennui and dissolution like our own, that it's incredibly difficult to become at home with the great books, and with the great minds. So prior to, and perhaps along, I'm sorry, alongside and perhaps prior to the reading of the great books, I think we need to become friends with many more, hundreds more of the pretty good books. Good books may not be those around which a civilization or a university program would be built. It's not Sophocles or the Bible or Plato or Darwin or Einstein or Aquinas or Shakespeare or Cicero. But the good books, Lewis, Tolkien, 
Wind of the Willows. You know, that story about the brave little canoe which floats down the stream to the ocean. Aesop's Fables. You can think of, you're thinking of many, I hope, right now that you read and delighted in as children. Good Night Moon. <laughs> List me a name of a good book which has meant something to you. Not a great book. Don't you tell me Sophocles because I won't believe you. Tell me the name of a good book, one that formed your imagination and causes you delight and you wish you had time to read. You also may not say Harry Potter. Charlotte's, Charlotte's Web. Web, very good. Old, Other, Man Old Man in the Sea. Interesting choice. <laughs> you know, it, it's a symbol of death. At the <laughs> what else? Other good books. Pretty good books. Brave New World. Very dark here at NYU. <laughs> Old Man in the Sea, Brave New World, 1984. Lord of the Flies. I was thinking Wind of the Willows. <laughs> Any other pretty good books? Winnie the Pooh, Silas Marner. Okay. Read those. The good books give us a place to inhabit, to dwell, to live and breathe. Not in the world, perhaps, of the greats and the giants who were before us, but to dwell with those who, like ourselves, are perhaps neither great nor giant, but give us the imagination and will and love to eventually inhabit and pull up a chair with the great and the giant. During a time in which many can't see, in the way that Peeper means it, many of us perhaps have to become accustomed to the light, like the cave in the Republic. We first read living books to bring life to souls. Sometimes those souls are just little and young and need to grow. And sometimes those, those souls are now hard of seeing and hard of loving and need to learn to see and love. Or perhaps they need to learn to taste. Taste might be a better, better metaphor than to see. Many of us need to learn to develop a taste for what's true, a taste for what's good and the lovely so that we can have a taste for what is not good and not true and not lovely. We'll taste off. Read good books. Read good books. That's first. Second, develop a healthy, healthy ability to waste time well. Waste time well. There's a modifier. Waste time well. As you well know, ours is an age of efficiency, of technique, of time management, and multitasking, and Twitter, and Netflix, and cable news networks, and Wikipedia, and YouTube, and a thousand other frantic spectacles and devices all of which it's easy to get lost into, is it not? Faster, more, more quickly, quickly now, manipulate the data, publish the paper, comment on the news story, keep up to date, text a friend. Now, helpless in that milieu is an education system which is utterly incapable of keeping up with all the content. Who could keep up, and frankly, who would want to? And so most of our educations have been, have been forced to resort to the two great enemies of human seriousness. One, specialization, which forces us to know very much about extremely little. And two, technique, which enables us to know very little about extremely much. Efficiency and busyness, however, are the values of the machine, the values of the pulley. But such values grind the imagination into the imagination of belts and bolts and pulleys, which compute and spit out. Instead, you, I would encourage you to resist the tyranny of instrumental reason and learn to waste time well, just to not comply with faster, more, spit it out and go. Go for a walk in the woods, Washington. Go for a walk in Washington. <laughs> for years, my friends have teased me. I grew, I grew up in a farm and I have this sort of like Wendell Berry love of going back to the farm. Except I grew up in a farm and it's awful and you just work all the time and you slowly go bankrupt. So I never want to go back to the farm. But I still have this yearning for it. So I've determined that I know what the good life is for me. It is to have a private ranch 
which is the entirety of Central Park in Central Park, so that I can have all the joys and life of the city and, you know, an enormous garden. Go to the woods. Go to the park. Tell some jokes. Go to the Strand. Haunt a church. Idle a day away, staring at beautiful things in boutiques you can't afford to buy anything in. <laughs> My own preference is for paper stores. Now, at some point, that waste of time will become indulgent. You have things to do, bills to pay, responsibilities. But I suspect your problem just now is not that you have too much leisure and not that you are slowing down too much, but instead that you are working frenetically and then you are resting in order to work more. Your rest is like a maintenance schedule, like an oil change, like filling up the tires in the car. And your rest looks a lot like watching all of Netflix as quickly as possible before you get back to work. Don't do something which is contemplative and causes delight. Of all things, a healthy respect for the Sabbath is the best way to learn to waste time. Well, keep the Sabbath. Sabbath rest is a mark of health and well-being. It's sort of like manna. Remember in the Hebrew scriptures, they don't, they're not allowed to pick manna, to collect manna on the Sabbath, but they are able to, get, to glean, to gain, to pick double the day before, but they don't know that there will be manna there the next day. They're dependent upon God. That's what Sabbath is primarily for. It's to learn to rest in God. It is not a time to take a mini vacation so you can really work hard on Sunday night. Third, liturgy. Good books, waste some time well, go to a paper boutique. They're amazing. The feel of the paper in your hands, the feel of a well-cut suit in your hands, whatever it is which you get excited about. I don't really care so much about the suit. The paper is amazing. Third, liturgy. For Christians, imagination, well, for all people, but for Christians, imagination is formed primarily through story-formed community. I love that phrase, story-formed community which is to say through the narratives and images and symbols of the church. Worship is the basic tool of formation that we have. And as we worship, so we will believe and value and do. If our worship is self-centered, we will be self-centered. If our worship is entertainment and another form of consumerism, well, you can anticipate the results. If our worship is sentimental or kitschy, so too will our souls be. But if our worship presents an, a majestic and noble and generous and delightful God, well, so too will we be. Even the simple insistence to worship as our fathers and mothers worshiped is an imaginative act of humility. To not create whole cloth, to not invent, but to do what has been done and to reject the age of manipulation or of advertising or of spiritual gimmickry. Be docile to the church. Worship as you are taught to worship. Fourth, I hope you like this one, dance. I think any university worth its tuition would spend a considerable amount of time teaching communal dance. I don't mean there would be spaces where people could randomly move around out of beat or in beat to the music. I don't mean the sort of wolf pack of people on the outside <laughs> looking at people on the inside who are dancing together for self-protection from the wolf pack on the outside. I don't mean that. I mean communal dance. I understand how quaint that sounds. I understand that some of you are sneering at me just a little bit just now, but trust me. Now, in order to trust me, will you forgive me for quoting myself? I know that's totally odious, but I'm going to do it. Here's something I wrote after a night of dancing. 
Recently, my wife and some friends threw a party culminating in traditional English line dancing. This is like Jane Austen dancing. I'd not done that before, and I grew up in a religious community which you were not allowed to dance. Dancing was forbidden. You didn't drink, chew. You didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, and you didn't dance. Like dancing was a serious offense in the community that I grew up in, so I don't know how to dance. I'd not done that before, and I went to the party somewhat hesitant. I thought it was going to be really lame. I thought I was going to feel the fool. But there we all were, jammed together in an overheated room, stomping and clapping, bowing and twirling to the fiddle and guitar. Mostly, though, we were just simply exulting. E-X-U-L-T. I held my youngest daughter to her shrieking delight as her older sister and I do-si-doed and promenaded around the room. And a triumphant son somehow convinced an older and rather pretty partner to stoop down to his level. Unlike other days, teenage boys could not escape their mother's arms, and I saw mom so jubilant and merry and relieved at this feat that they were paraphrasing Simeon, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. <laughs> Grandfathers danced with granddaughters, husbands with wives, friends with friends, a few yearning adolescents with hearts beating time to another more ancient reel. In that sweltering, overcrowded room, you could hear the music and see us leaping, joined in circles, feet rising and falling in mirth, the association of man and woman holding each other by the hand or arm. We were, I was, drunk with it, flushed of body and soul, delighted with the others, thrilled with reality. We were not, as I feared, ironical or skeptical, but approving. We approved in the old sense of the term. We recognized goodness and we loved it. We willed that it should be, should exist, should continue. In the handing off of one partner to the next, we handed on, traditio, the rhythms of the good reality that preceded us, and we followed the patterns long set down by others and by the creator, and it was good. And we were free. On another occasion, quoting myself again, I was with several dozen members of my parish celebrating Oktoberfest, lederhosen and beer, a roasted pig, um pa pa dancing. My son, who was maybe seven at the time, was so proud, so roosterish, as he led his older and younger sisters around the floor. Never mind that he knew not at all any of the steps. Neither did anyone else mind. He danced out of joy. Most strikingly, my youngest wove and bounced her way around, joining hands and eyes with other dancers somewhat willy-nilly. Like, oh, you're here. You'll do. Hers was the way of affirmation, a deep and childlike sense that all was well, all was well, all manner of things shall be well, and thus she could keep the feast. Now, I don't think that such universal approval is just shallow optimism, nor do I think it's just having a nice time, nor do I think this denies the tragic, but still festivity and the contemplative celebration, the reaching out for what is good, the delighting in things which are delightful because they are, that's the way of affirmation. Even the feasts for the dead depend that all is well with the world. We don't celebrate the death. We celebrate that they're well in some way beyond what we can accomplish ourselves. Such deep approval is first of all to be taken in the literal sense, we approve, it's good. We turn to the other and we say, it's good you exist, it's good you're in this world, it's good that you are. This is the opposite of anxiety and pointlessness. Those practices, these practices of affirmation serve to turn us into lovers, those capable of magnanimity of love and of real delight. In the Christian understanding of the world, I'll repeat what I said earlier, God just is a communion of love. That's what the Trinity is. God just is a communion of love. 
I think it's fair to get from there to God just is a mutuality of delight in the goodness of the other members of the Trinity. With such mutuality that there's a shared being, a consubstantiality among the persons of the Godhead. We are created in the image of God and we're meant for such loving communion and for the free offering of ourselves. But we are already, and the world is already, a free gift of God. He delights in us. And our task is to learn to love as God loves. Those are the great commandments, are they not? To learn to love as God loves, to love God, to love neighbor, to love ourselves. We can't do that unless we see things as lovely. We can't do it unless we see things as lovely, as having a freshness deep down things, as Hopkins puts it. But so much of our culture is existentially poor, and it would have you be poor as well, and it would call you not poor but rich. It encourages barrenness of soul. It rewards it. It trains it. It reinforces it. Ours is not a time which is alive with joy. It's even a time, Pieper suggests, that's rather barren. But I hope you're not. And I hope that forming the way in the eyes of love will be your way.